There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. You're listening to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy. It's just over a year ago, on January the 23rd, 2020, since China locked down Wuhan, a city of 11 million, to combat the emerging COVID-19 outbreak. The virus has since claimed the lives of more than 2 million people globally. Information about what happened there is patchy, and the World Health Organization has undertaken a lengthy process to try to figure out the origins of the pathogen working against Chinese officials who've been reluctant to agree to an independent inquiry. This week we're asking what happened in Wuhan. The Chinese-American director Hao Wu has made a documentary called 76 Days, the number of days that Wuhan was in lockdown. Filmed in four Wuhan hospitals, it tells the story of COVID-19 patients and medical staff struggling to cope with this new illness. One hospital even had to lock its doors, with crowds of patients outside desperate to get in. You can hear the chaos of those early days there, but what does the documentary also tell us about life in China under quarantine and the personal impacts of the virus? Also in the show, I'll be speaking to our Beijing bureau chief, David Rennie, author of the Chaguan column, to hear how China has dealt with COVID-19 throughout the year and how does their response differ from that in the West. But now, Hao Wu, welcome to The Economist Asks. It's my honour to be here. I think one of the things that will strike people is the panicked reactions that we see of these extraordinarily brave people in hospitals contending with life and death on a daily basis. I think it would be surprising to many in the West that your team was able to film in that way in the Chinese system when in many ways it is very hard to make truthful documentaries in China. During the lockdown of Wuhan, the access to hospitals were restricted to medical professionals, patients, and reporters. You know, not all hospitals grant access, right? Obviously, the, and because in the early days, it was absolute chaos and panic in Wuhan. The decision about access is made basically by hospital chiefs. And if the hospital chief wanted to allow you to come in and do some reporting, you can pretty much roam free because nobody had the time or energy to really watch over your shoulder because everybody else, all the medical professionals are so swamped dealing with patients. So once my two co-directors were allowed inside the hospital, they could pretty much roam free. Let's talk about the people in your documentary, the kind of scenes that grab attention. I think really from the first frame, it opens with a woman uh, in full protective clothing begging the medical staff to go and see her father, who she thinks is still alive. We quickly work out that he's died of COVID in hospital. And they don't let her go in. You get the impression that she might be a colleague, a doctor 
or a nurse who, who knows the team? Yeah, she's a nurse. Uh, she works at the hospital. And so she was just trying to say the last goodbye to her father who had just passed away from COVID. And this hospital, we should say, they're absolutely inundated with patients and doors opening and shutting all the time, people being rushed in and out. So there are real tensions there from the start about what they have to do every day. Yeah, and also her colleagues have really had to restrain her, right, from rushing into the, the room and, and, and just to touch her dead father because that was at the early days of the lockdown. That was when little was known about how dangerous, how transmissible the virus was. So they, they had multiple layers of PPE on, right, multiple layers of masks and hazmat suits. So they were just trying to hold her back, just say, don't go inside because you might risk being infected. And later on in the same scene, a doctor actually came up to her and said, keep yourself together because we have to work. We have to be responsible for our patients so you cannot collapse yourself. How did you choose the stories to focus on when you've got a deadly pandemic on this scale going on? Everyone has family stories. Everyone has their own dramas. We meet an old man, I think he's just called Grandpa in the film, who has dementia. and He keeps trying to escape from the hospital. And There's not exactly much light relief here, but there is a moment of absurdity sometimes, isn't there, in these situations where people have their own problems laid on top of this extraordinarily difficult pandemic and the response. Both of these things have to be dealt with together, don't they? Yeah, absolutely. I think even in the beginning of 76 days, it was just absolute panic and chaos and fear, right? But gradually, as the outbreak was being put under control in Wuhan, you see life and complexity of humanities come into play. You see how there's also humor moments. You see life being born, new babies being born. In the middle part of the film is all about how the the patients and and, and the doctors, they try to work together, trying to get better. You mentioned the baby, and it's a story of a newborn who is called Little Penguin in a pet name uh, by the staff. And the poor mother isn't able to see her baby until she's quarantined. I'm afraid this is the one that that, uh, really did for my producer, who was in floods of tears, she told me, when she was watching that. And I think there is that sense, whether you're a parent or not, that you can feel that wrench watching this story unfold. As a father of two five-year-olds, I find the the weight uh, before the mother, because the little penguin, as soon as she was born, she was taken away uh, from the mother uh, for fear she's going to get infected. And then the baby had to go through some kind of quarantine in a uh, children's hospital, while the mother first had to go through sort of like isolation in the hospital for her to fully recover from COVID. And then after that, she reunited with her husband and the two of them had to quarantine for two weeks in the hotel. Only after that, they were allowed to return home. Once they got back home, they had to call the authority, call the hospital to figure out when they could be going to the hospital to pick up their baby. So for the mother, it was agonizing way because she after she delivered the baby she never had a chance to even touch the baby as a parent myself i found that weight excruciating and looking at the footage seeing how hard it was for people locked down in wuhan and for those in the medical profession and associated work dealing with the situation 
Do you think that the Chinese government made good decisions in that first month? And was it transparent about those decisions? I think, you, you know, there's um, consensus in the early days of this outbreak in Wuhan. The local government, at least the municipal and the provincial government, they hid the information. But we actually don't know how the decision was made to control information flow in the beginning, um, just because... the there's a lack of transparency in terms of political decision-making in China. Uh, but really quickly, once the government started putting the, the city under lockdown in the early days, even within China, many people were asking questions of whether the measures the government was adopting were too draconian, infringing on people's human rights. People in China ask those questions. But really quickly, as the pandemic reaches down to other countries and the situation in China quickly stabilized and life gradually returned back to normal all over the country um, starting in the summer last year, I think people in China gradually accepted what the government had done in early spring as the, the right approach. Your style is observational here. There's no mention of politics in China or the context of international politics or argument about how to approach lockdowns and the pandemic. And I did wonder if you were aware of the risk of facing censorship or not being able to use your footage if you were too critical of China or even perceived as being critical of the response COVID-19? Absolutely. I mean, all Chinese filmmakers or artists know about censorship, right? But since I, based in, in the US, I make work and distribute it overseas, you know, I care about it less. For example, with my last film, People's Republic of Desire, you know, it was censored in China, but then it was broadcasted elsewhere. And, you know, it's, a, it's on Amazon Prime streaming platform. But with this film, the primary reason we decided not to include any political discussion or include any news news clip in it, the the first reason being my co-director captured such wonderful, raw, observational footage. During the editing process, we quickly decided we're going to make a pure observational verity film in the tradition of Frederick Wiseman, and just to let audience being able to experience it. So we did try to cut in some, you know, some news clips and interview bites. Somehow, every time we tried it, it just destroyed the artistic integrity of the film. And the second reason being, we also filmed, we did interview whistleblowers, and we did interview dissidents who try who tried to sue the government. Um, but then, first of all, we go back to, we, we wanted to make the film more like a film rather than just another extensive news reporting piece. And secondly, their stories have been so well covered in Western news media. We just don't feel like we can bring anything new. I was asking myself, because I know you also filmed in the hospital in New York City during the outbreak, whether you felt it was comparable to the kind of scenes that you saw in 76 Days. And so whether the cultural differences in the way the pandemic is treated come to the fore when you're dealing with emergencies and people whose lives, east, west, wherever they are, are hanging in the balance. The longer I film in New York, the more similarities I found between Wuhan and New York. Uh, How people, how society um, 
respond to the pandemic outbreak, it's pretty similar. It's the same story. It's about early days. It's all about, you know, not having enough PPEs, not not getting protected properly. There's panic. There's fear. There's also a lot of heroism uh, in terms of uh, making self-sacrifices to save the patients. But there is one major difference, which is, at least in New York, it was almost impossible for me to get inside a hospital due to the privacy laws and also the worries about liability from the hospitals. Uh, so I couldn't get inside a hospital to get the footage I want. That's also another reason why we decided to really focus on telling the Wuhan story, because our footage from there is just truly amazing, truly unique. One of your two co-directors is unnamed on the credits. Why did you make that decision to have one of them remain anonymous? When we started working on this film, very quickly, COVID narratives become tightly controlled in China. First of all, he was worried about uh, what if the government would have some issue with how the lockdown is portrayed in the film. And secondly, uh, he's more actually afraid of um, some of the uh, very patriotic internet trolls in China. Uh, some, a lot of the young kids, internet users, they become trolls. They pick on anything that shows China in, even if it's just slightly negative way, they will come in and attack you uh, viciously. To be honest, it just happened to me over this weekend. You know, the, right now, 76 days is trending, started trending on Chinese social media over the weekend. Right, and two days later, um, t- this morning, I found out a lot of people are attacking me personally on Chinese social media. What's the core objection that you get from people who come after you or troll you about 76 days? Is it that you're too critical or is it that you're not telling the truth? Um, a lot of these trolls like trolls everywhere, right? They actually don't pay attention to read the whole article or watch a whole film. They just accuse me of being US-based filmmaker trying to uh, use the tragedies in China for personal gains. That's one. Secondly, they attack any project that's funded by, you know, foreign institutions. And uh, they also found out through digging through my social media records in the past that uh, I'm I'm a gay man. I had kids through surrogacy. They attacked that as well. So it, it, it's just been a lot of vicious personal attacks. I was worried about your co-directors and your crew watching all this. Did they manage to get through it without contracting COVID-19? I have huge admirations for my two co-directors who really took enormous personal health risk uh, in terms of going to, fi- you know, filming on the front lines. For my co-director Wei Xu Chen, uh, one week after he started filming, he, you know, he had f- high fever for an entire week. Uh, he he was really worried he had contracted COVID nineteen. But later on, when he went to the hospital, did the COVID test. The test came back negative. Uh, but even today, we don't know whether that test was accurate, especially in the early days. Um, for them, the the stress. And initially, definitely was the fear of contracting the disease. But, but I think later on, the, it's more the mental stress, the anguish of, of filming, of witnessing people dying in front of them and feeling completely helpless, powerless in terms of trying to help those in need. So, yeah, so sometimes I joke with Wei Shi Chen, uh, I'm like, do you want to go back and do some you follow up on these characters uh, you filmed? He's like, absolutely no. I think for, for a lot of people who 
lived through the lockdown. It was such a traumatic experience. People emotionally are definitely scarred. Hao Wu, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much, Anne, for having me. 76 Days is available on Dog Wolf On Demand and other digital platforms. Our Beijing bureau chief, David Rennie, listened to Hao Wu there talking about the human experience during that 76-day lockdown. David, what do we know about the politics? Is there evidence that information about the virus was hidden by the local authorities in Wuhan at the outbreak? I'm afraid there is. So local officials in the city of Wuhan, the surrounding province of Hubei, prevented hospitals and doctors from reporting this new form of uh, virus into the disease reporting system that was supposed to spot pandemics. And then national officials uh, forbade publication of research on the virus without their approval and took until uh, way too long to report critical information to the outside world, and really, frankly, only because there were leaks by whistleblowers in the system. So it's possible we lost three weeks uh, when we could have been preparing for this pandemic. And how aware do you think those people we saw, obviously under huge pressure in how was film and competing against the odds and those life and death stories, how aware do you think they would be of that in the Chinese system? They were all extremely aware because some of their own doctors in Wuhan had been whistleblowers and most famously Li Wenliang, uh, an ophthalmologist who got COVID uh, and in fact died of it, um, had tried to warn colleagues that he'd heard that there was something like SARS uh, floating around in the system and he was called in by the police and punished for spreading that. So not only doctors in Wuhan, but everyone in China by the time Dr. Li died uh, knew that there had been a cover-up. How Wu says, I think people in China accepted that what the government had done in terms of the restrictions and the big lockdowns was the right approach. You're in China observing this week in, week out and have been throughout the pandemic. Is that your experience of how people experience these restrictions? Look, people are complicated. Human beings are complicated. And I think it's possible for Chinese people to remember that there was a cover up at the beginning and to be angry about some of the way that the lockdowns were handled, uh, where people were kind of really pretty cruelly treated in some cases, didn't get uh, food in time, uh, were sort of bolted into their own apartments. But for those very same people to take the decision that overall, they think that China's really tough approach built on locking people inside their houses for weeks on end, uh, lockdowns of cities uh, now, even when we get a new flare up of very few cases, They basically support that. And one of the big reasons is they look at the rest of the world and they think that China's approach, although it's extremely heavy handed, uh, extremely inconvenient and continues to really make life very weird here, um, just makes them feel safer than what they see on the TV coming from abroad. And has implementing lockdown been the main response from Chinese officials when there's a case of the virus? Are there other methods that they've used that we perhaps pay less attention to in the West? China's basically done two big things, one of them kind of brute force, one of them smart technology. The brute force is something that you probably just could not pull off in the West, which is that from late January, when they first locked down Wuhan and then the province around it of Hubei, by kind of a few weeks into the pandemic, several hundred million people in China were not allowed outside their homes. Or if they were, it was kind of once a week with a special pass to buy food and then to go straight back home. People lost months of wages Uh, They couldn't earn anything. They weren't allowed out. Um, If you travelled anywhere, you were locked down all over again. And since 
that enormous brute force effort really broke the chain of transmission and did get the virus under control, they've taken an absolutely zero tolerance approach to new waves of infection. So, you know, only recently, the city near where I'm sitting in Beijing right now, uh, called Shijiazhuang, city of 11 million people, was locked down for two weeks. No one could leave their homes, basically, uh, for about 400 cases. Now, there are Western cities that would have a party to celebrate only 400 cases. But here, that was seen as such a large second wave that 11 million people were just basically told they couldn't leave their homes. And we've had that again and again and again. And so that's the brute force approach. We've then got the high tech approach, which is... Uh, you know, every time you leave your home now, uh, you have to scan with your smartphone a QR code on every building, every shop, every bus, taxi, metro station you go into. Uh, so your movement is tracked continuously at all times. They can do contact tracing. You have no privacy whatsoever. And if you leave the city, you have to get a COVID test. If you come back in, you have to get a COVID test. If you leave Beijing, you have to quarantine effectively for another two weeks. So, you know, I've had like a dozen COVID tests so far. I'll have maybe a dozen more. And I've done weeks and weeks of quarantine in the year of this pandemic in China so far. I was just thinking if this applies to you, you must be racking up the quarantine weeks. I am racking up a lot of quarantine weeks. Uh, I've done, I think, six so far. And I haven't left China for more than a year. So it's not foreign quarantine. And the other big thing they've done is they've locked the borders down. So I am one of not that many foreigners now in China. It is basically impossible to get into China from uh, a large parts of the world, including most of Europe and the US. And there are hundreds of thousands of Chinese students, for example, stuck outside whose families are desperate to get them back in because they feel China is safer. They can't get in either. It's not officially impossible, but the Chinese have put such controls and test requirements and certificate requirements that it's effectively completely impossible to get in. So this country of 1.4 billion people that I've been in for more than a year is basically, to all intents and purposes, closed off from the rest of the world, has been for most of a year and probably will be for about a year to come, as best we can guess. And how does the international community look at China's response. We remember President Trump calling it the Chinese virus, looking to lay blame. Do you think his view is widely shared uh, alongside sometimes that kind of envy of the impact of the lockdowns and a decent response as time went on in terms of reducing transmission? It's a really mixed picture. I mean, we should pay credit to the fact that China is capable of extraordinary feats of organisation. So, you know, it has been incredibly impressive to watch hundreds of millions of Chinese obeying the orders to uh, stay indoors, not travel. Uh, they're about to miss Chinese New Year for a second time in a row. It's like missing Christmas and Thanksgiving all rolled into one. Lots of people went without pay for weeks, uh, didn't complain about it. Certainly, there's no debate about wearing face masks. People think it's ridiculously selfish uh, when they hear that Westerners are grumbling about wearing face masks. Uh, you know, the testing has been incredibly impressive. It's, it's possible to get tests really fast. Uh, they test enormous numbers of people, millions of people in the space of two, three days if they need to. But there's a flip side to that. Lots and lots of foreign diplomats here are absolutely furious, pretty much publicly, with the way that the Chinese have handled this. The fact that China covered the virus up at the beginning, bullied governments into keeping their airplanes flying from China into their own airports, and then as soon as China decided 
that it was time to seal the borders. China turned on a dime and sealed its borders, having accused others of being anti-China for trying to stop flights out of China. Um, so incredible double standards there. China demanding to be thanked and praised for selling ventilators to foreign countries as if it was a donation. China playing virus and now vaccine diplomacy. So you have to suck up to China in public if you want to be given access to China's vaccines. The fact that China's vaccines, they won't release the data on how effective they are, is a huge political headache for countries that have agreed to buy millions of doses. So there's a lot of anger. And I think at the most basic level, the fact that China's economy is now recovering, it's the only large economy in the world that's recovering, here in China, the, the propaganda is deafening that this is proof of the superiority of the Chinese Communist Party. But if you're a foreign government and your economy is, on, is flatlining because of COVID, maybe you're about to lose the next election as a government because of COVID, and you think that the Chinese might be to blame for it, and they're now boasting about how successful their handling of COVID is, that's a pretty provocative combination. And do you have any observations on how Chinese people view the West's response to the pandemic? I'm afraid it's really heartbreaking. The truth is that people look at the West and they think that it is a disaster. And beyond that, a lot of Chinese people, and this is a very strictly censored police state, so we don't know, you know, there are no accurate polls. But having not left this country for more than a year, having had endless conversations with Chinese people, I can say that the image not just of Western countries, but of the very idea of democracy has been really, really damaged by COVID. The propaganda rings true with a lot of Chinese people that this virus has exposed the fact that Western democracies are just a sham. They're a sort of wicked lie. The idea that democratic governments are accountable to their people, that they're designed to look after the masses is a wicked lie. Look at how these powerful people have not looked after their publics. The Chinese Communist Party has done so much better. Look at the chaos abroad. Look at the calm and order back home and realise that democracy is a mistake. And I'm, I'm afraid that that message rings home with an awful lot of Chinese people who have a kind of mixture of contempt or gloom when they look at how badly the West has done. Let's return to Wuhan, where the film is, of course, set. A group of World Health Organization scientists have taken many months negotiating to be allowed access to the city. They're trying to find out definitively what happened when COVID broke out in Wuhan. Uh, do you think they'll prevail? And what does this laggardly approach to letting them in tell us? Look, it's very hard not to be very suspicious. It is ridiculous that it's taken a year to get this team in. There are no guarantees that they're going to talk to the scientists and doctors who know about the cover-up at the beginning. There is an incredibly important question that the world needs to know, which is, is this China's fault? And by that I mean, did China have a chance to contain this when it was small enough to stop it? Because if China could have sounded the alarm, allowed uh, the world to prepare and, and contain this in Wuhan or inside China's borders, then we wouldn't have had to have this pandemic at all. And the problem with that, of course, is that that really affects all of our responses to the undoubted personal bravery of the medics and the people of China. Because if this was an avoidable pandemic caused by their secretive authoritarian system, then it's very hard to get past that to praise their kind of medical response to the pandemic that they may have caused. 
Beijing Bureau Chief David Rennie there, and our thanks to filmmaker Hao Wu. And we'd love to know what you make of China's draconian response to the pandemic, and also David Rennie's observation that this period may have set back calls for democracy in China. What do we make of that? Write to us, radio at economist.com, or you can tweet us at Economist Radio for our best introductory offer to our coverage of China, the pandemic, and everything else that's going on in the world. Go to economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. I'm Anne McElvoy, and in London, this is The Economist. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.